listening to this week's message from Freedom Church. For more info on Freedom, visit freedomdl.com. Thanks for listening. We're in a brand new series uh, this month called Little Things. And Little Things is, uh, it's all about those small things in our lives that we can do to make big impacts in our lives. I know a lot of times we try to make the big impacts because we want to see the big change, but it's never really the boulders that you trip over. It's the little pebbles that you trip over. And the same thing works on the other side of the coin, that it's not really these massive, huge, one-time changes that change everything. It's typically the little things you do over the course of time. Around three-quarters of our population is what we call an S-personality. On the, disc, on the disc scale. Now, at our church, we have this class called Empower. It's an online class. You can go to freedomdeal.com slash empower. And it's, if you want to become a member, that's a class you take. Uh, it's four little videos. But one of them, one of the ser- sections is a personality profile. And the whole point of the personality profile is to figure out how God made you, how he wired you. Did y'all know that y'all are not all the same? Like, y'all don't think the same? Um, some of y'all are married to somebody that is polar opposite of you. For instance, I am an ID personality. That means I love people, but I like getting a job done too. Uh, but when I get under stress, I turn into a DD. You hear what I'm saying? Like I will run somebody over, so I have to remember to calm. I got to calm down, bro, and don't bulldoze people. This, this test, test helps you. Now, my wife is a C personality. Anybody know what a C personality is? Like methodical, like perfectionist, got to have everything. Y'all. Our personalities don't necessarily mesh, but it's interesting how God puts two people together whose personalities don't necessarily mesh on paper, but she provides what I lack, and I provide what she lacks, and God makes us one. But this this test really helps us. The problem is that most people, three-quarters of the population, um, hate change. Okay, Most of them don't like it, but there's a small group that like abhors it. Like, kill me rather than change me. Just let me... But like it or not, y'all, things change. You see, our lives are constantly moving. They're constantly shifting. They're constantly adjusting. And I'm willing to bet you're probably not the same person you were 10 years ago. Some of us aren't the same people we were 10 minutes ago. Because see, we were in the car with our kids, and we were screaming and yelling. We came in, and we were like, the light of Christ. Hello, everybody. (laughs) Right? All right, that's real life, isn't it? But while change is constantly happening, y'all, change can be very uncomfortable. It can be. And I love the old adage, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Now, I'm talking to some of the older gentlemen in the room. We love that, don't we? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I've been wearing the same deodorant for 400 years. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> But while the old man inside me loves the idea of don't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, I also understand that when things are constantly shifting and developing and changing, we often can't use the same tools to see the results that we want to see. I understand that the hoe might not be broken, but they have a brand new tractor that has a tiller that you don't have to worry about. You know what I'm saying? Like, we have to move technologies and change things up. And churches are notorious for this, y'all. Churches are really bad at this. We, we are so dumbfounded that the thing that worked in 1993 ain't working in 2023. I was in youth ministry for 20 years, and did you know that from 2005 to 2015, things drastically changed, and what worked in 05 did not work with youth in 2015. And what worked in 15 doesn't work now. You have to adjust. Now, now listen, we are obviously talking about changing methods here, not our message. We never change the message of Jesus Christ. But if you want to see the best, then you're going to have to give your best. And isn't that what change is all about? 
Isn't that what change? Change should be positive change so that we can become everything God created us to be. Do you want to become your best? Do you want to be the best husband or wife? Do you want to be the best son or daughter? Do you want to be the best employer? Do you want to be the best employee? Do you want to be the best leader? Let me ask you this. Do you want to be the best follower? There should be something in every single one of us that drives us to pursue excellence. Excellence is a core value here at Freedom Church. And excellence is our standard, is what our specific core value is. Now, a lot of people look at excellence and you automatically think perfection, but let me enlighten you. Excellence is not perfection. Excellence is you giving your best effort. And here's something that should free some of you. God is not asking you to be perfect. He's asking you just to give your best effort. Some of us, we need to be better about our efforts whenever we're doing, like whenever we're fighting temptation. Sometimes we don't really give our best effort when we're fighting temptation, and then we're mad at Jesus for not making a way out. He's like, my bro, I, I gave you the ability to withstand that temptation if you trusted and relied on me, but you just didn't give your best effort. But remember, God gave his best. So we should want to give our best. Now, we don't always end up giving our best, do we? That could be for a variety of reasons. I mean, perhaps something changed and you didn't quite embrace that change quick enough or you didn't adjust to it quite quickly enough. That would explain why you got hit in the face when somebody threw a punch at you, you know what I'm saying? Like you didn't get that Mike Tyson weave and, you know, and all that stuff. But, but maybe you just aren't simply pursuing your best like you should be. While 75% of us don't like change, I bet almost all of us want to become everything God created us to be. And guess what? That requires us to change. It does. So let's look at some Bible verses that will prove that. Okay, Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is a great one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is good, uh, what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Do y'all see within there a change, a transformation that has to happen in your life? I'm sorry, but you're not going to be able to live the life God's called you to live while still entertaining the same sins that are keeping you locked down it's just not going to happen well i can you know i can I, I can serve jesus and get drunk every now and then it's just a little wine he said take a little wine for your tummy is what he said now come on let's let's can you really continue to engage in sins that keep you down and still become everything god created you to be i think of the rich young ruler his sin was that he loved his possessions. And Jesus was telling him, listen, I love you, brother, and I want to see you do some great things. I have a great plan for you, but I'm going to need you to let go of some things and transform what you think is important to you so that you can embrace what is really important. And he couldn't do it. What about Ephesians 4, 22 through 24? Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. When I was in college at Lamar University, I was a part of an organization called Stand 318. And this was our, um, our specific passage. It's 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, So all of us who have, the, who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into his glorious image. This is, listen guys, coming to church, reading your Bible, praying, 
Don't do those things to get your star. Do those things so that God can transform you into who he wants you to be. What if you stopped reading your Bible as a chore and started reading your Bible for the fact that God will take, he will take who you are and verse by verse chisel away at the rough rock that you see yourself now into the incredible statue of David that Michelangelo saw and into the beautiful thing that God created you to be, the powerful thing God created you to be. And this is a part, I think, I think some of the problem is that we will look at ourselves in the mirror and we see a rough piece of rock and we don't see what God sees. But reading the word, praying, coming to church, getting around people that love God and are pursuing God like you are, what they help you do is to adjust your vision and shift your lens just a little bit so you can do what 2 Corinthians 3.18 is talking about so you can see unveiled what God created you to be. Sometimes you can't see it for yourself. And you need to surround yourself with people who can see in you what you can't see in yourself, and they call that out of you. You can clearly see here that there's this expectation that we will, at salvation, begin the process of morphing into who we were to become who God created us to be. Now remember, salvation is the line of scrimmage. It is not the goal line. A lot of times, people, churches, will sell you salvation as if that's all it takes. Well, you just say yes to Jesus, and you don't have to worry about nothing else. It's the beginning of your relationship with Jesus, not the end of it. Salvation starts the process. And guess what is really true of the process? It requires change. Now, we might agree, like it or not, that change is inevitable. And a lot of times we get fouled up, though, because we do expect those changes to be massive and we expect them to be overnight. For instance, let's say you have an addiction and you prayed and prayed and prayed that God will set you free from that addiction. But it, it, it hasn't happened for you. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. There was one specific thing that did happen for me when I was in college. Right before I started with Stand 318, I was in a fraternity. And what do you do in fraternities but drink all the time? And I got really attached to Sky Vodka. Like, too attached to it. You hear what I'm saying? Like, came from an Irish family background. I can handle it. You know what I'm saying? Like, built into the blood of Irishmen, right? That's just a generational curse that's got to be broken off your life is all that is. So if you trace your, your heritage to some isles on the west of Europe, you break the curse of alcoholism. That's, forget that mess. And so I told the Lord, I was like, God, you're going to have to take this flavor away from me because I like it. I love it. I want some. Well, see, some of y'all like just went back into the old life. I'm trying to get you to the new life here. But I'm going to tell you right now, instantly, God did something. And I'm telling you, if I smell alcohol, hard liquor right now, I'll... I will call dinosaurs. Y'all hear what I'm saying? It makes me sick. That's something God did for me instantly. But, but sometimes that healing process is not about a big change, but little incremental changes that produce big results that we're looking for. And I think sometimes we get so disappointed because we're not seeing some big change. But we're refusing, because we're so focused on the big change, we're refusing to see the little changes that we're making. For instance, what happens if God wants you to abandon some people within your friend group that are constantly keeping you in a pattern of sin? Anybody got any friends like that? Don't raise your hand. You might be sitting next to them, okay? If you're sitting next to them, just post up like this. You know, like, they might be keeping you in sin. Now, now... The, the gung-ho, zealous side of your Christianity would say, cut ties in the name of Jesus, right? Hey, that might work for you. God bless you if it does. 
But most times, those relationships have to be weaned out of your life. Let me give you a real simple, non-spiritual reason why it's important. If you cut every relationship you have right now without having made new relationships, you're going to be isolated and alone. And when you're isolated and alone, that's the devil's playground, isn't it? So what would God have you do? Maybe a little change would be say, you know what? I'm coming to men's group this week. I'm coming to women's group this week. Guys, go to men's group. (laughs) Praise the Lord. I mean, I'm single, ready to mingle. Women's group sounds like fun. Chill out. (laughs) Get out of here with all that. Tell you what, you need to come to the altar first, run to the Father, what you need to do. No, um, but maybe, maybe you come, and maybe the first week you just sit there. You know, at, at men's group, we don't make you say anything if you don't want to. You don't have to. I'm sure they do the same thing in women's group. You don't, you don't have to talk if you don't want to. But, but maybe the first week you're there and you just check it out, but maybe you decide to come to next week, and the next week you meet somebody, and you're like, y'all get to talking because you like motorcycles, and he likes motorcycles, so y'all get to talking about something that has nothing to do with Jesus. And before you know it, you're sending them a picture on text of your motorcycle and y'all chatting back and forth. And they'll say, hey, let's go have a ride. Come on, Shane. Let's go ride somewhere. Yeah. And when y'all sitting down across the table from, uh, at, a, at a little cafe somewhere in a hole in the wall and y'all look across and all of a sudden you feel like, man, I wonder if I could tell them about something I'm struggling with. And you open your mouth and a little incremental change. Come on, man. It begins the process yeah. of your life being changed forever. Do you know the easiest way to break friends, friends away from you that you don't need is to get friends that you do need. That's the easiest way. These are just examples. But the point is to get you to stop focusing on some massive change that you might want and instead focusing on little changes that can help you reach the same goal. Big changes are... Um, at once are very hard to pallet. I don't know if you know this, but they are. Um, back in the day, they would have to cut you open to get the gallbladder out. But now they make three little cuts, and it's out in 30 minutes. Now it hurts like the Dickens. But anyway, God bless you. Big changes can be dangerous because if we're not ready for them, they will be such a shock to our system that we can't maintain them. So let me give you a biblical example of this. Genesis chapter 17 I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 4. When Abram was 99 years old, stop right there for a second. 99. My grandpa will be 90 this year, and every time I talk to him, he's like, oh, come on, Lord, take me on to glory at 90. Okay, so it's like, can you imagine being 99 and then God saying, hey, by the way, I'm El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully, live blameless life, and I'll make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. Okay, what, God? Um, At this, Abraham fell face down on the ground. Then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make make you the father of a multitude of nations. (laughs) Now, if you want to talk about big change and not being able to handle them, um, how do you think Abram and Sarah would have handled it had God made them the parents of 12 kids immediately? Like, not octuplets. I don't even know what the 12 would be, but 12 tuplets. <laughs> what? We're going to start you off. 
with 12. Some of y'all with one are like, this is crazy. You know, like with one kid. Can you, what, what if God gave him the multitude that day? You know, God gave Moses millions in one day. And it about destroyed him. Be very careful what you're asking God for. Because if your character has not been developed enough to be able to receive what you're asking for, you will either destroy it or it will destroy you. That's why we come to church. That's when we have godly friends. They just want my attendance and my tithe. You know what? Keep your money. Develop your character so God can give you everything. You're worried about what you have to give. God's worried about what he's trying to give to you. Look at this passage. God tells Abraham he wants to make a covenant with him and says, look, I want you to serve me faithfully, live blamelessly because your descendants are going to be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. Can you imagine that? Has God ever said something to you that absolutely made no sense based on your current circumstances? Uh, For instance, Sarah was barren. Why do you think they didn't have any kids? Barren. God was telling Abraham, this is a big deal, but if we read further, we see that God did prepare Abram for the big change. In Genesis 17.5, here's what the Bible says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. God did not dump a multitude of nations on Abram in that one moment. That would have been too big of a change for him. So instead, God implemented a little thing, a little change to begin to prepare Abram for what was about to come. It was as simple as a name change from Abram to Abraham. Now, why did God change names in the Bible? He did this with Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. He did this with Jacob to Israel, Simon to Peter, Saul to Paul. What you doing, God? Do you think God just was like, oh, what's that guy's name? Uh, P- uh, Peter. Uh, you're Peter now. Like, In the Bible, that change represented two things. It represented, number one, the indicator of God's covenant with you. I named you. Come on, parents. You named your child. You put your name on that kid. When my dad adopted me, you know what has changed me the most? It's not just that he wanted me in the family. He wanted me to have his name. He didn't just want me to be a boy that was a step. He wanted me to have his name. And so what does that mean? That means that whatever authority my father had, he transferred to me through my name. So when God changes your name, he's not just saying I'm in covenant with you. He's saying everything that I am, I'm pouring out upon you. But there's another reason. It's because it's always tied to your purpose. It's always tied to your purpose. In the case of Abram, Abram means exalted father. God says, nah, that's not enough. I've got a bigger plan for you than even what your dad thought you should be named. Come on, somebody needs to hear that. Even what your daddy thought about you is nothing compared to what I have in store for you. So God says, you're going to be Abraham. You're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. Now, these are little changes, but they produce massive results. So I want to spend the rest of our time today, if you'll let me, talking about how these two little changes, little name changes, can make a massive difference in your life. Are you ready for this? First one is this, going from God to Father. God to Father. Let's first start with God. 
What does it mean for God to be God? If you look in Webster, Webster says, the creator or ruler of the universe and source of all moral authority, the supreme being. Okay, that's a pretty good definition of God. Absolutely, right? Well, look at what Michael Reeves said. But I don't have a copy in my hand, but I made sure that we had some copies of Delighting in the Trinity. Tony, could you grab me one? Delighting in the Trinity out in the foyer. Um, this book, other than the Bible, this book has made the biggest impact on my life. Now, it's just a book about explaining why the Trinity exists and why it's important for God to be a Trinity. God doesn't work unless he's a Trinity, by the way. I don't know if you knew that, but it doesn't work unless he's a Trinity. So this right here is the book. And in my book, Killing the Orphan Spirit, I actually quote Michael Reeves in this. He's the, um, he's the dean of a theological college in England, one of the greatest minds in the world right now. I'm telling you, this guy is on it. Um, you should get a copy of this if you don't have one. But here's what he says. I look around at the world and since it must have all come from somewhere, someone or something caused it to be, and that someone I will call God. God, then, is the one who brings everything else into existence, but who is not himself brought into being by anything. He is the uncaused cause. That is who he is. God is essentially the creator, the one in charge. Now, listen, this isn't necessarily a bad place to start. It's good, but it does create some issues, okay? If God's very identity is to be the creator, the ruler, then he needs a creation to rule in order to be who he is. Well, for all his cosmic power then, this God turns out to be pitifully weak. He needs us. So if God is just creator, then he's got to have us as the creation to be who he is. That can't be God, right? Think about the notion of God being a ruler. If that's the case, then all I have to do is obey the rules and I'm saved. And beyond that, the only salvation that he can offer me is to forgive me and treat me as if I'd kept the rules. Imagine you're pulled over by a cop, okay? You're speeding. <laughs> you know you were speeding. The cop gets out and says, you know what, man? You were doing 35 over the limit. I should take you to jail right now. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to extend grace and mercy to you in this moment, and I'm just going to tell you, please slow down. Please be safe. Get to where you're going. Now, you would feel gratitude. You'd feel relief, but you wouldn't love him. You wouldn't go home like, oh, I fell in love today. Really, we're at 146. <laughs> DPS officer, let me go. No, you wouldn't do that. You surely wouldn't change your entire life because of him, would you? In the same way, if salvation is just relegated to rules and keeping laws, you can never really love that God, one who's just a ruler. What about God as creator? While we still run into the same issue as a ruler, that God can only be a ruler if he has something to rule. A creator can only be a creator if he has a creation, okay? But it begs another question that's way more meaningful, and this is something that Michael Reeves posits in his book. He says this, if God's primary definition is creator, then what was he doing before he created? I'm trying to get to the, to the root attribute of who God really is. Now, we get a glimpse into this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's plurality right there in that one verse. So God has to be more than just a singular being, which basically means that the pantheon of gods and other religions are not valid with this God. That's why, listen to me very clearly, Allah and our God are not the same dude. Okay? 
No matter how many times people on TV say it's the same dude, it ain't the same dude. I'll tell you one reason why. Allah is one, but our God is a trinity. From the very beginning, God was showing us the trinity, that there was something better than the supreme authority. We, we get the actual answer to this question in John 17, 24, and it comes from Jesus. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Before God created anything, before he ruled anything, we find the crux right here of this entire message. God's primary definition is not creator or ruler or supreme being or uncaused cause. Jesus tells us precisely who he is. Before he ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a father. Loving his son. Why is, why is this so important? If you'll give me one more quote, at least one more quote from Reeves. I really like this guy. Since God is before all things a father and not primarily creator or ruler, all his ways are beautifully fatherly. It's not that this God does being father as a day job, only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. It is not that he has made a nice blob, that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father all the way down. Thus, all that he does as a, is, is as a father. He does as a father. This is who he is. He creates as a father and he rules as a father. And that means the way he rules over creation is most unlike the way any other God would ever rule over creation. You can follow after creator God or ruler God or supreme authority God or uncaused cause God, but. His desire is that you know him for who he really is, Father. This is how he identified himself in Matthew 3. You remember when Jesus got baptized? God says, you hear a loud voice that says from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, read between the lines, people. If this is his beloved son, who is he? He's his loving father. Remember, Jesus is the firstborn among the brethren. It's Romans 8, 29, which basically means he's the first one born into sonship. Y'all, I could spend a whole series on sonship, and I have before, might do it again. It's huge. Sonship and daughterhood is the reason why you were created. Okay? It is the reason why you were created. But there's another passage that I hope really helps you understand what God wants you to call him as far as names go. We find this in Jeremiah chapter 3. This is a powerful, powerful passage right here, starting in verse 11. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart. Come on, people who've been hurt in the church who've been hurt. God, if you will let him, if you will return to him, he will put people in your life that are after his own heart for you. That's what he promises in this verse. They'll feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you've multiplied them and fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not even come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. Y'all were living in that time. 
At the time, Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it, the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north and the land that I gave to your fathers as a heritage. Now listen to this. I said how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations, and I thought you would call me father and would not turn from following me. Listen to the heart of this creator, ruler, supreme, uncaused, cause God. Listen to his heart for you. He doesn't need all these majestic titles. He just wants you to call him dad. He just wants you to see his heart of a father towards you. I don't know how you refer to God, but deep down in his heart, he's a father. And it's not based on his doing, it's based on his being. However, some of you might not see God as a father simply because you haven't seen yourself as a son or a daughter. And that might be the crux of the problem. I can't see God for God as a father because I've had a trash father. Maybe I've been a trash father. Really, a thought process like that can only be because of three things. Either number one, you haven't made Jesus Lord of your life. If you've not made Jesus Lord, then it's absolutely impossible that you're going to be able to embrace him in his fatherhood and your sonship. Two, you've had a negative experience with your earthly father and simply can't make that jump, which is a lot of the population, trust me. Or number three, you've been so sinful or bad or maybe even so used and abused in your life that you can't imagine anybody wanting you as a son or daughter. Well, if it's the first one, keep listening to the message. You're going to have an opportunity to say yes to Jesus today. In fact, why wait? If you right now, right now, if you just confess Jesus is Lord, the Bible promises that you're saved. You don't have to wait till the end. Right now, say it under your breath and let the air come out of your mouth. Jesus, I believe in you. I trust you as Lord of my life. I receive you right now. Save me, Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. Y'all can do that at the Delta and out at the Walmart. Y'all don't got to do it here. Anywhere. If it's the second one, don't think for a moment that God is anything like your earthly father, even if he was good. Okay, don't think that. You cannot fathom how good the father is. And if you're using your earthly father as the measure for your heavenly father, stop. Okay, just stop. Okay, I said one more quote from Reeves. Let me give you one more. He says this, but God the father is not called father because he copies earthly fathers. He's not some pumped up version of your daddy. To transfer the feelings of earthly fathers to him is quite simply a misstep. Instead, things are the other way around. It's that all human fathers are supposed to reflect him. Only where some do that well, others do a better job of reflecting the devil. Okay, so here's what you do. Ask God, the Father, to open your eyes to the love that he has for you. Listen to me. In spite of your daddy in spite of your mom, in spite of what that leader said about you. Listen to me, in spite of what you tell yourself in the mirror. The last one, if it's the last one that you feel like you're too sinful or bad or used or abused, then in that same passage in Jeremiah, just go a little further in verse 22. Let this engulf you. 
Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. This, this moves me so much because I've been faithless. Come on, am I the only one? Am I the only one that's turned my back on him at times? No, you're the preacher. You're not supposed to do that. I'm a human, man. I struggle too. And if you come on Tuesday nights, I'll tell you about my struggles. You know what I'm saying? Like, what well, stays in men's group? Come on, fellas. But, but, but it's like, but, but I struggle too. I, I sometimes create orphanhood in my own life, even though I've dealt with the orphan. <coughs> but God loves you. And it's never been, he's not waiting to annihilate you, man. He wants to bless you. Going from God to Father is a little change. It's just three more letters. But what that little change brings about is a huge shift in how you see yourself and God. It's, it's a huge shift in how you see God. And he really isn't trying to destroy you. He's not enduring. He's not just putting up with you. Oh, gosh. You know, Marvin's awake again, guys. Be on your guard. That's not how he acts about us. He isn't annoyed with you or angry with you. Ruler God might have been. That guy might be mad at you. But we serve Father God who rules and creates as a father does. So what does that mean for us? That means even if you break the rules and disobey, the heart of God does not begin in his ruling. It begins in his fatherhood. And that means that his desire for you is restoration, not denigration, not destruction, not punishment. This is breaking. This is like messing some of y'all up, isn't it? That God would look at your sin and your issues and choose to operate out of a heart of a father instead of out of the heart of a ruler. Does that mean that God ignores the sin? Absolutely not. He sent, he sent his firstborn to be broken and die on the cross so that your sin could be fixed. Y'all listen to me. He loves you so much that he didn't even leave you fixing sin to yourself. He did it for you. You, kid, you ever have a kid come up to you, one of your kids, and they can't open the bottle of uh, water? Using their teeth and whatever else, trying to raise the dentist bills up. What y'all doing over here? Stop eating the top. Let, let me do it. And you just go, click. Look how easy that was, son. Some of y'all are struggling your whole lives trying to fix what you broke instead of just allowing the heart of the Father creating you the faithfulness that you broke. When you see God for who he really is as a father first, then you can see all the other attributes that he delights in to reveal to you. I remember when I was a kid, there was a thing on the wall. It was all the names of God, or a bunch of them. And I remember it was this plaque thing. And I would sit on the sofa and I would read them. And those names just got stuck in my brain. Jehovah Nissi, Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah M. Kadesh, all of them. I'm going to read them to some right here. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord my banner. Jehovah Raha, the Lord my shepherd. Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Um, the Jehovah Shammah, the Lord who is there. Jehovah M. Kadesh, the one who sanctifies you. Jehovah Jireh, come on somebody, God who provides. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. I love this one. Jehovah Saboeth, it's the Lord of hosts. That just sounds balling, don't it? Um, Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Yeah, righteousness, that thing that you think that you can do with your good works, God did it for you. If you just say yes to his boy. It's a huge shift in how you see you as well. Sons and daughters. Galatians 4, 6 says this, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son in our hearts, the Spirit who calls out what? 
not ruler, not creator, not omnipotent being, not supreme power, not the uncaused cause. Dad! Quickly, let's talk Jesus from Savior to Lord. From Savior to Lord. Now, don't stone me because you think I'm up here saying that you can't call God God or Jesus Savior anymore. It's not what I'm saying. Romans 10, 9 and 10, though, says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For it is with the heart that, that, that believes and the mouth that confesses and is justified and the mouth that confesses and is saved. The Bible keeps on though and says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. We've lost the importance of lordship in the modern church. Yeah, I said it. We've lost the importance of lordship. Okay, the church has gotten so enamored with the attributes that we love, we've almost abandoned and rejected the attributes that actually make the difference. We call him friend, yes and amen. Brother, he's the good shepherd. Lamb, redeemer. Oh, I love this one. Rose is Sharon. Uh, the lion, life, advocate. These are good attributes. These are godly ones. They're, they're biblical attributes. I'm not making fun. I'm saying these are good ones. But none of these attributes apply if you're not using the one attributes that means the one attribute that means the most, and that's Lord. All you have to do, all I have to do to be your savior is to save you. Oh, gosh, the car's on fire. Quick, if I get you out of your car, I'm your savior. Oh, right? All I have to do to be your advocate is to advocate for you. But the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life is what makes the difference. So what is the Lord anyway? Like we, we know English law, Lord is basically a ruler over a piece of land, but he's still subject to the king, right? But in terms of Romans 10, 9, and 10, the, verse, the word there is kuros. It means authority or a person who has the ultimate right to decide. Hmm, that's interesting. Jesus has ultimate deciding authority in our lives when we confess him as the Lord. Can I tell you something? We're really bad at that. Uh, Luke 6.46, we're not the only ones. They were too back then. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I tell you to do? This is where so many people live. We want what comes with lordship, but we are unwilling to give him deciding power. So what we do is we're trying to have our cake and we're trying to eat it too. We're prompting Jesus to simply say, I am your Lord, you say, but you refuse to abide by my decisions. What's up, bro? I get it, y'all. This isn't easy. So maybe it's not a good question to say, is Jesus Lord of your life? Maybe it's, why isn't he? You know, for most people, it's about losing control. That's why they don't want to give Jesus deciding power. Well, if I give God deciding power on my job, what if he puts me in a, oh my gosh, what if he sends me to, to Africa, to some little village in Africa, and i got to live in a hut? Let me tell you something. If God called you to go to Africa in a little village in a hut, there ain't nothing in this earth that would satisfy you like that. It wouldn't. That's why every job that I've had before this one, I've always felt like there was something more. It's because this is what God created me to do. This is what he created me to be. But I have to give him deciding rights in my life to get to that spot. I never signed up to be no servant, Jesus. Well, you know what? He never offered servitude as the requirement for a relationship. So one hand on you, okay? He's only ever offered sonship and daughterhood. <laughs> 
Here's an example in Luke 15. And he, Jesus, there's a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, give me the share of my property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. The prodigal son, what did he do? He ended up squandering all the money, didn't he? He was sitting in the pigsty and he said, oh my Lord, if I could just have the food on my dad's table. So here's what I'm going to do. I will arise, verse 18, and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your hired servant. Prodigal said to himself, I can do better at directing my life than this old man can. I'm going to be in control of my life. That's what the prodigal said. But the prodigal failed to see the truth, and this is huge. Sonship inside the father's house is exponentially better than control outside of it. Read that. Ladies, daughterhood inside the father's house is exponentially better than you having your control outside of his house. So let me ask you this question. If this is really what's keeping you from making Jesus Lord of your life, then who better a person to submit your entire life to than the one who has spent the, entire etern- the entirety of existence, even before creation, being loved by the Father? I get it you don't want to lose control because you've been burned before. I, I do, I get it. But who better to love you than the one who's been loved by the Father endlessly? for the entirety of, of time and before. There's no one better. And can I tell you something else? Not even you are better than that. There's nobody better to love you and to care for you. There's nobody better to make the decisions that are going to make the big changes in your life. There's nobody better than Jesus. Not even you. So let's wrap it up. There may be other reasons why you don't want to make Jesus Lord. And, you know, freedom, we exist to help you embrace Jesus and to, 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 to help have freedom in every area of your life, okay? And when I say Lord, I don't just mean first-time salvation. I mean a daily making Him Lord. <laughs> Y'all, sometimes we need it second by second. Oh, Jesus, you are Lord because this person next to me is about to get the devil. You hear what I'm saying? Like, come on, y'all. Don't get all churchy up in here. Right? Don't church it up. It's, we know how it is. But what this means is you have to let Jesus have ultimate deciding rights in your life all the time. This is terrifying. Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What? But the, you just said, if I confess you as Lord, I'm saved. But the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. So that tells me a few things. Number one, you have to call him Lord. You have to actually let him be Lord with deciding rights. And then you also need to know the Father because if you don't know the Father, how can you know His will? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's terrifying. But this is what we're missing in American Christianity. Lordship is all or nothing. It's yes to anything and everything Jesus wants. It's not just saying Lord, but actually letting Him be Lord. So here's what I want to do. I I want you to see the results of embracing God as Father and Jesus as Lord through a passage of Scripture in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. A new name on a white stone. Listen to what Matthew Henry has to say about this. The white stone is absolution from the guilt of sin. 
alluding to the ancient custom of giving a white stone to those acquitted on trial and a black stone to those who were condemned. The new name is the name of adoption. Adopted persons took the name of the family into which they were adopted. None can read the evidence of a man's adoption but himself. He cannot always read it, but if he persevere, he shall have both the evidence of sonship and the inheritance. God wants to give you a white stone to give you a name consistent with who you really are. So just as we change his name from God to Father and Jesus to Lord, he wants to do the same thing for you. So let me ask you, what have you called yourself? What'd your daddy call you? What did that bully at school call you? What has the devil been saying about you your whole entire life? Writing it, throwing it, stoning you with black stones, condemning you with every moment. Here's what I'm saying. If you will embrace Jesus as Lord and get to know the Father, he gives you a white stone with a new name. How many of you in here could use a new name today? This is what God is offering you. And you know what? I have two buckets on the altar today. Before you leave today, grab one. Grab a stone. Let this be a reminder that as you interact with God the Father and Jesus your Lord, that he's also interacting with you in a new name, a new covenant he's made with you, a new purpose he has for you, a new family you've been adopted into. I'm inviting you to do the same thing today that Revelation 2 says, God the Father, Jesus the Lord. <laughs> Little changes. Massive results. I just want to ask, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you today in this message? How does He want you to respond to this today? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this moment. Father, I can remember in the process, Lord, when, when You were killing the orphan in me and and helping me embrace sonship. I remember specifically the day where you said, stop calling me God, start calling me Father. God, my life was changed at that moment, embracing who you really are, your love for me. God, and as I walk in that love, it, may, it just makes me want to be better. It makes me want to change to be more like you. It, it makes me want to give you deciding rights even more. God, I've had so many names thrown at me in my life, and this congregation has as well. But God, we're asking you to give us the name that you have for us. Family, if you haven't embraced Jesus as Lord, today's the day. Why are you waiting? You need this more than you need the next breath. However the Holy Spirit wants you to respond, I invite you to do that today. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you're our Lord. Thank you for your sacrifice. Father, thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. At Freedom, we want to help you have authentic relationships with God and His people, to have real experiences with the Holy Spirit, and to find lasting freedom. If the Holy Spirit speaks to you through this message, or if you want to make a decision for Jesus, please reach out at freedomdl.com connect. For more info on Freedom, including service times and location, visit freedomdl.com. Thanks for listening.